you have to have the patience to find the right deal. And in some ways, it, it, it really sucks just sitting there on those sidelines and go, oh, it's been six months or a year or something like that since we bought a property. But if the numbers don't work, the numbers don't work. And you have to have that patience and say, okay, we're only buying houses if they fit these criteria. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. If you like our show, the easiest way for you to give back is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions on how to do that. We would be so grateful. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Our guest this week is a former banker who now writes about early retirement, credit cards, and travel. He's also the host of the inspiring and endlessly entertaining We Travel There podcast. Well, Lee, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Hey, it's great to be here. Uh, we're glad to have you. So give us a quick story about how you got into real estate investing. Okay. Uh, back in 2006, actually, actually, back in 2005, my dad was starting to get uh, some problems with his health and everything. I was working a lot at the job that I had in corporate finance for a bank. And um, we sold our house. Uh, we decided it was time to sell the house. And we sold the house in April of 06. So absolutely perfect timing. Good timing. Uh, literally, you know, three months later, uh, everything started going down in prices. And when I sold the house, I said, okay, well, I've always kind of been interested in uh, you know, real estate investing. And as we were looking around for houses for my, for my parents to live in, in North Carolina, where my brother lives, we came across a house that was like almost perfect for them, but not quite. And at that point, it already had a tenant in it. And so we found the house that was perfect for them. And I said, well, you know, I have a little bit of extra money anyways from the sale of this other house. Why don't I get that one too? And it sounds kind of, it sounds kind of odd and rude almost where you say, oh yeah, give me that one also. It's almost like you know, getting a, a Big Mac and, and fries uh, when you go to McDonald's. But uh, you know, coming from California, and when you look at some of these houses in other parts of the, other parts of the country, the prices are so cheap. It just you have a, a skewed perspective as far as what the value of uh, homes are and everything. And uh, the rental property I bought, I think it was about one hundred and twelve thousand. And you know that was the that was the first one. And uh, when my when my dad passed away in two thousand twelve, I turned the house that they were living in into my second rental property, and then kind of accelerated since then. Okay, so you started buying single family homes in North mm -hmm. Carolina. Um, yes. Did you have an intention at that time, like, well, I'm going to become, you know, a real estate investor and, and this is, this is the path I'm on, or was it sort of an accidental landlord and you went, Oh, um, no, I mean, I always like read about, uh, you know, investing in real estate and talking about diversifying your portfolio. And you know, for me, for my retirement accounts, I actually invest pretty uh, aggressive as far as stocks on all of my accounts. Because I look at my real estate as my uh, the, basically my bond portfolio you know, that's going to be driving all the income, so that allows me to be more aggressive in my in my stock portfolio, my like IRAs and four hundred one k. And did you go in with any sort of 
criteria that you were looking for as far as minimum cash flow, ROI that you were looking for on those single family homes when you bought them? <laughs> At first, no. I, I was like, oh, that's cool. Hey, it basically pays for itself. And I didn't think about, oh, there's repairs and yeah, yeah. there's turnover and there's vacancy. I, you know, I was a total noob. Uh, when I first started out, uh, like everybody else, right? I didn't know anything. Um, and back in 06, there weren't websites like yours and bigger pockets and all the other ones out there that I could really kind of turn to for that advice to figure things out. So I just kind of like, oh, okay, as long as it pays for itself, it's fine. And that was fine. That was fine for me because, uh, again, literally my car payment was more expensive than the mortgage. <laughs> on the property. So I'm like, okay, whatever. It's like a rounding error. So where is real estate taking you now? I don't know how much, do you still just have the two properties or? Yeah. So I bought those two uh, in 06 and then, you know, between the recession happening and my, you know, focusing on my career, uh, getting married and buying our own home and, and things like that. It took a, a while before I had any more cash to be able to buy the next one. And with those, you know, it was, you know, either buying at hundred percent in cash or getting bank financing. And then I had all these other things going on. And so it was getting the third one was on the list, but it was down the list, <laughs> you know? And then, so I finally, our, our home was appreciating in, in value and we had, took out a home equity line of credit. And so that's when I was buying the third one in 2013. And basically did that one. As I was buying it, I started doing a little bit more research as far as, okay, well, okay, I want to be able to buy more, but if I buy 100% in cash this way, how am I going to get my cash back out? How am I going to be able to buy the next one? I really don't want all this money like left in there. Uh, and then if I refinance it, I'm only going to get 60, 70% of that cash back. That's a, that's a big chunk of money that you're leaving in the house. And so the real estate agent that I worked with to buy that house wasn't somebody that worked with investors. She didn't really know much. And honestly, I didn't really have her do much when I was buying that one. Cause I was at that point, I was already kind of figuring out the parameters I was looking for. And I just happened to be searching on her website uh, using her MLS search. And based on that, I'm like, well, okay, my brother's in town. I need you to show him these six houses. Cause I'm going to buy one of them. That's basically, <laughs> that's basically the, the extent of her job during that thing. And then the house that I did buy, uh, the agent that I, that was selling and representing the seller, I liked the way he worked. I liked the way he showed the photos on the MLS, had a video in there. It was you know pretty professional. Uh, it is a little bit of a podunk town in North Carolina. So it was a little bit different than what I'm used to in, in California. But he was, it seemed to me, he was on a much higher level than a lot of the normal uh, agents in that area. And so I started talking with him and figuring things out from his perspective. And then I started talking to one of my lender buddies and started getting into better parameters as far as, okay, how can we buy something distressed, fix it up, rehab it, refinance it, get a tenant in place, and then be able to pull the cash back out in a more advantageous way. And that's what we've been doing ever since. And so now, since then, we did four or five flips, which were kind of break-even-ish. And then we've added six more rental properties to the portfolio. We actually just finished the rehab on uh, the, the ninth property total, the sixth one since we've been doing this process uh, this month. Gotcha. So you're at nine, nine total single family homes in your portfolio now. Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And now that you, you're doing this, what's your goal? Your like big goal down oh. the line. <laughs> so my overall strategy is this, we use a program called delayed financing. And so with this program, you can have a maximum of 10 properties, you know, of loans in your name 
assuming that you can cash flow them for the underwriting. Uh, so you can do 10 of them in your name. And then we structured it so that way I can put 10 in my name, 10 in my partner's name, and 10 in my wife's name. And then now we can have a total of 30, right? And then at that point, you're like, okay, well, I've maxed out this program. But at that point, what we would do is we would kind of cull the herd, so to speak. We'd find the ones that are the, the worst performing or that maybe even have the, the, the highest equity component on it, in it. And then at that point, sell those, kind of free up slots in that delayed financing program, mm-hmm. and then take that equity and 1031 into an apartment building. Gotcha. And then at that point, now we have more slots, fill those slots again, max it out to the 10 each, and then cull the herd again and refinance, I mean, uh, you know, reinvest into an apartment building, just keep doing that over and over again. That's cool. Gotcha. And do you ever sit down and do calculations like what your what your return on equity is on the properties? That's something that a lot of people don't consider when they're like, well, I've got cash flowing and my ROI is this. And then when, when they sit there and they go, well, I've got 50% equity. And it's like, well, what's your return on equity now? Because as you yeah. as the equity goes up, your actually return on equity starts to go down. Eventually it gets to the point where it's like, eh, you might be better served moving the equity somewhere else. Is that sure. a calculation that you, you take into account? I haven't got into that yet. I mean, it's something that I should, especially with my finance background. And it's almost embarrassing to say that I haven't, but you know, it's one of those things that this program is so advantageous the way that we use it, that I want to max out the program first. And then at that point, start looking at other variables uh, as far as I think those type of calculations would be more based on when we're calling the herd. Yep. At that point, okay, this one may cash flow a little bit better, but the return on the equity is not as good as this, this other one. So let's sell this one instead of that one. And you're essentially going to be at some point, you're going to kind of stack rank everybody based on some of your variables like your ROI, your cash flow, your ROE, all those different variables and say, okay, which, is the, which are the ones we're going to sell? You know, you started in 06. And as you said, there, you know, there wasn't really, bigger pockets wasn't really around, although it may have just been starting up. How did you go about getting yourself educated on real estate investing when you first started off? Back then, you know, it's like magazines like Kiplinger's and uh, you know, just different books. And even today, I still read the paper. Actually, I kind of have a stack of papers I'm, I'm a little bit behind on, but I still read the uh, newspaper. I'm probably the last one in my generation to actually do that. But I just, I just read constantly and talking to people and just always kind of picking somebody's brain. And then at that point also, it's, Unfortunately, a lot of people don't do this. You learn something from somebody and all you do is apply it to that same scenario. But unfortunately, the world is very diverse. And so what you need to do is say, okay, the lesson I learned from this situation, how can I apply that lesson to all these other situations that I'm involved in? Because although this person had this happen to them, I'm never going to be able to replicate that exact same scenario. So how can I apply that lesson to all the other different areas of my life? Yeah. I mean, we talked about financing. So you first financed uh, those first couple of deals with the sale of your primary residence in California, correct? And that, you- that, and then I just, I had 15 year loans on them, basically put a, a big down payment on them and then put them in a 15 year loans. Because at that point I was like, Oh, I want to be able to accelerate the payoff and I want to be able to pay these off on in a quick basis. Gotcha. But that decision actually kind of uh, hosed me down the line because you know, when you're looking at debt to income ratio and minimum debt service, those type of things, even though I was making good money at the bank uh, back in LA, once you start getting your primary mortgage, your car payment, student loan payments, any of those other type of things, any sort of credit card minimum payments that are required, your debt service can kind of skyrocket, right? Especially if you're doing a 15-year loan versus a 30-year loan. And so 
that decision actually you know, made it tougher to get loans four, five, six down the road. And that, that was a problem. So essentially what I've done over the last few years is I was listening to this podcast. I have to think of the name of it off the top of my head, but uh, his name is Joshua Sheets. And he had this episode. It was like how to basically pay off your debt in like 10 years or less and basically be financially free. And so that was probably about three years ago. And I started really kind of thinking about it, maybe three or four years ago. And I really started thinking about it pretty heavily and I go, okay, how can I do things? You know, I make good money. You know, I'm pretty frugal by nature. These properties are, are cash flowing and paying for themselves. If I can accelerate the payoff of some of these debts, like especially those ones with the 15 year mortgage with the huge principal payments, I can kind of clear that off the books. And so that way now I can focus on these other properties that are much better on the cash flow side and much better as far as when the underwriter is looking at my debt service. And so that's basically what I did. I, I have three properties that are solely in my name and I'm now six that are with a partner. And so my goal uh, is to basically pay off all the debt that's solely mine and then let the, pro let the cash flow of the six that we've done so far let those kind of service the debt on, on those. And that way it's still all my debt because the loans are in my name, but it's just, I just kind of like a, that mental break between, okay, these are my properties. Everything's paid off. That's just solely mine. And then yeah. the other ones, that's where the debt's at. So I want you to, you, you briefly mentioned the, the delayed financing program and I want, I understand it, but I want you to clarify it for some of our listeners that maybe don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. So it's a, it's an awesome program. Essentially, if you, if you buy a rental property normally, either you, you can get a maximum of like 70 to 75% loan to value. So if you buy a hundred thousand dollar house, the maximum loan you can get is either between 70 to 75,000. And so, you know, if you're buying something just traditionally, right, that's on the MLS, you got to come in with a 25, you know, $30,000 down payment. So with delayed financing, what you can do actually, and then let me back up. Uh, and then say you, you buy something distressed and you fix it up and then you want to refinance it. Traditional lenders say, well, thanks, but uh, we'll lend on the, the, the value that you bought it at, or you can wait a year and then we'll, then we'll do an appraisal. And uh, you know, if you're, if you're in a hot market where you, there's a lot of deals, you don't want to wait a year because you could be missing out on three or four or five deals al along that path. And so with delayed financing, it's a, it's a kind of like a special carve out. Uh, and it's an Fannie and Freddie product where what you can do is you can buy it, rehab it, get a tenant in place, and then refinance it all within six months. As long as you do that within six months, you can use the lesser of the appraised value, 70% of the appraised value or whatever's on the HUD. So on the HUD, essentially what you're, you're doing is you're buying it and then you're including your rehab costs and some of the other ancillary costs on your HUD. Uh, and then that way you're kind of loading it up. And then that way, whatever the lesser of those two numbers are, that's essentially the maximum loan value you can do. And so it allows you to, you're taking in whatever money you're taking in to buy it and rehab it. You're able to take almost all that money back out within six months. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. So if you say you buy a property, it's 50,000 and you put $20,000 into it, right? And so you pay all that, you write a check basically for $70,000 uh, for your HUD, you know, obviously there's some other costs, but you know, we'll just focus on these two factors. And then now it appraises for a hundred, essentially you can get almost a hundred percent of your dollars back because you're getting a loan for essentially $70,000 versus the appraised value of a hundred. And you mentioned that some of those early properties you financed actually using a HELOC. Is that correct? 
Yeah. So what I did is well, actually the first two back in 06, I didn't have a, a home anymore. So I didn't have a HELOC, but I just had some cash from the sale of our home. Uh, so I basically bought them and then refinanced them right away. They tried to pull the cash back out and this is more just traditional financing with like the 70% loan to value. And so it was, it was tough. Uh, all of a sudden now you had a, a huge bunch of money like locked in there and you're paying retail prices for the home, you know? And so it's tougher to, to make things cash flow when you bought it for 112 and it's renting for that one at the time, I think was renting for like 850 or 900. And so it's a decent amount. It's covering the mortgage and it's covering the property taxes and those type of things. But there's nothing in it for me other than just the, the principal reduction on the loan. And I had a big chunk of change you know, left in the property. So that was like less than ideal, right? Because not a, like, no matter how much money you have, every, if you keep doing those type of deals and you keep leaving twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 in them, you're going to run out of money really quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and so with this delayed financing that I learned about in, I think it was 2013 or 14 from working with my mortgage broker, that way, you know, st- starts sounding way better because now you can, you can basically force appreciation by buying something to stress. You're improving the neighborhood. You're improving the house values around you because now you're taking something that was like a blight on the neighborhood, something that was kind of run down and, and dilapidated. You're fixing it up. I mean, you're not making it the Taj Mahal, you're not gold plating everything, but you're making it nice. You're making it kind of fit into the neighborhood. You're fixing up the, the outside, uh, the inside. You're making it really attractive. And my whole goal is always whenever we do the rehab is you want to improve it to the, to, the, uh, to the neighborhood and maybe just a, just a hair above. Because if it's just a little bit better, essentially the goal is that you're going to have less turnover. So if, if your property is a little bit nicer than all the others around and about the same price, most people are going to go, well, I'd rather stay here because this one has X, Y, and Z amenities versus this other one that's maybe a little bit run down, a little bit outdated, those type of things. So if you can reduce your turnover and reduce your vacancy, that's huge on your cash flow. How much time do you spend each week on working on the real estate? It all depends. Um, when we're not working on a project, it's really just a couple hours where you're just kind of like maybe searching the MLS or, or talking to realtors, trying to, you know, wholesalers trying to find deals. It's either be, between me and my partners, probably a couple hours. But when we're actually actively rehabbing a project, like right now, you know, there's a lot more conversations happening with, uh, with our, with our contractor or with the property manager, making sure the project is, is getting along. You know, I used to live in California. Now I'm in Nashville. We're closer, but still not in the same neighborhood as our properties in North Carolina. And so you're still doing the out of state, you know, you're still relying on pictures. At least I'm close enough where if I said, you know what, I'm going to come check on, on everything that's going on because I'm not quite sure we're making fast enough progress. It's a, for me, it's an eight hour drive. I can leave in the morning, be there by the afternoon. So at least like, at least I'm a little bit better as far as proximity, but we have a pretty good team now where we're not worried about, uh, you know, a lot of those things. And so essentially it's just conversations. Hey, what's going on? What have you done this week? You know, how much longer do we have to go? And, uh, it's still pretty, it's still pretty minimal even during these times. And then once, once the, and then sorry, once the project is done, then you basically turn to your focus onto the financing side and, we have a pretty down pat as far as, okay, here's all the different documents I, I need. We keep all the statements downloaded. We keep everything ready. So that way we just give them everything. And it, basically when you're going through the finance process, it's like a game of tennis. You keep wanting to hit the ball back into the other side of the court because 
you have your rate lock for a certain period of time. And if you don't get the loan done, then all of a sudden now you got to pay extra for extending the rate and everything like that. It's just added costs that are unnecessary. So anytime somebody asks you for a document, you want to be able to have that document back to them as, as soon as possible. That way, again, there, you don't want them waiting on you. You want all the documents to them right away. That way they can keep working and get your loan done as soon as possible. So are there any, you know, you're having to invest uh, somewhat long distance. Are there any systems um, that you have developed that help you sort of automate your business at all? Really, it's, it's having a good team. Uh, that's number one. And then when we, when we did the flips, we had a little bit more of a, a process in place where we kind of use some uh, online source where essentially we had them fill out every week kind of, okay, here's the progress. Here's uh, what we did this week. Here's what we plan to do next week. How much of the, of the budget have we spent so far? You know, the estimated data completion was this initially, where do we stand on that data completion now? Are we ahead of time? Are we behind time? So we basically had a, a form that they had to fill out every week and then uh, send us some pictures as far as the work that was completed. And that was really the main process that we had. You mentioned your team. What sort of people have you hired, if any, or is this mostly just like your partner and your wife? Well, the, the team would be more of, I mean, yeah, it's my partner, my wife. Uh, my wife is basically just kind of along for the ride. You know, she she just said, okay, here, do this, do this, and she'll do it for me. But she's not involved in like the day-to-day, so to speak. But, and my my partner, he does, he's a real estate agent. So he does a lot of the searching for the MLS for, for other properties, but I'm like the, the numbers guy. So I do you know, the accounting and, and uh, the tracking of people, those type of things. But as far as our, our t- when I'm saying our team, it's more of our property manager, contractors, real estate agents, you know, mortgage brokers, insurance agents, all those people that, that kind of fill the holes that, of expertise that we don't have. Yeah. So you have a property manager that, that helps you run the properties once you're renting them out? Oh, absolutely. Like to me, uh, yeah, you're spending, you know, eight to 10% of your revenue, you know, having that, but having them take care of everything, especially mm-hmm. long distance is key to me. And it's money well spent that way they handle all the problems. I'm not getting phone calls in the middle of the night. I like to sleep, you know? <laughs> and so I don't want to, I don't want to be taking calls at 2am and then trying to figure out, okay, who am I going to call and who am I going to get to do to replace that toilet or whatever? I don't want to deal with that garbage. Uh, you know, I got other things I, I got to do. And even if I'm paying them a little bit, I can take the money, the time and create other money by either focusing on, on my other business, or I can b- take that time and, and talk to other investors, talk to other people as far as finding additional deals. And so that's, that's better spent you know, time of mine than it is dealing with day-to-day aspects of, of the properties. Now, how did, you, um, how did you go about building that team? Like it, it really, it's recommendations. Like my brother uh, was married to a woman who uh, her family was building homes. And uh, that second house that we bought, actually her, her father built that house. And uh, so from him, you know, he was really connected in that area. And so I started kind of reaching out uh, to some of his connections to find, like kind of interview people to yeah. see if, if there was a connection between us. And for a while, you know, some of these people worked out well. And, you know, you got even if you have a good team, you got to always be finding that plan B. You got to always have that because a few years ago we had a, a great new property manager. She was you know, always attentive. We became good friends even. And then all of a sudden a screw came loose and she decided to leave the country and take our security deposits with her. Mm. And 
painful lesson, yeah. but um, luckily the we're supposed to be getting that money back from the Department of Real Estate. They're they're finished their investigation and everything, and we're supposed yeah. to get some of that money back. But uh, it was a very scary moment when you know seven eight thousand dollars just disappeared. Yeah, and so we we had no idea what was going to happen, and so you got to always have somebody else where it's like okay. Yes, I like who I'm working with. And if something happens, because it eventually will, you got to figure out where you're going to go next. So you invest long distance. You said you visit, you know, you really only visit the properties if there's maybe, you know, something going on, you could send an eight hour drive away. How long would you feel comfortable completely stepping away and letting, letting your, your system work for you? Like if you wanted to, you know, Lee, you're a traveler, you love to travel. How long would you feel comfortable saying, you know what, I'm going to, we're, we're going to take the family on a, on a, a world tour. How, sure. how long would you, would you feel comfortable doing that? Well, one, uh, the wonderful thing about the technology today is that you can be kind of contacted anywhere. You know, it's very rare that you can't be connected somehow through email or Wi-Fi to take a Skype call or anything like that. So you don't have to do that, but mm-hmm as long as we're not working on any additional projects and, and then needing to do the financing and, and things of that nature, then it, it pretty much can just handle itself. I would say even now, while my property manager has authority, if it's up to a certain dollar figure, he just takes care of it. Right. Uh, and then lets us know that, okay, Hey, I had somebody come out and fix the toilet or, uh, you know, we replaced X or Y. And so, okay, that's just normal course of business. And, and that's what a property manager should, should be doing. As far as I'm concerned, I, I like being a little bit more hands-on than, than some other people. I at least want to know, like, okay, just send me a message. Let me know that this happened. You have the authority to, to make those repairs. I just want to know that they happened. So that way, when I get the rent check the next, the next month, when the deposit happened, I don't question why the money's short. What do you feel like is the most critical critical skill that a, a new investor that's looking to to work in your niche the kind of burr method right yeah. in that vein what do you feel like is the the most important skill for someone new i would say actually two skills one being organized because if there's so many moving parts of so many different components throughout the entire process if you're not organized things can get like way out of hand. And next thing you know, maybe you've blown through the budget or again, like you, you're not getting things to the, the mortgage broker in time and it's just delaying that entire process. And maybe you miss then the six month window because everything was getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And so you gotta, you gotta be organized. But the second, and this, whether it's your new or your experienced pro is being patient. Because yes, like for me, like the last couple of years, we haven't done as many deals because I think everybody's been watching HCTV and they think they can, they can do it. And they see the numbers on HCTV and they go, wait a minute, I, I was supposed to make all this profit and I made like significantly less. Well, it's like, well, they don't include all the different costs there and they're real estate agents. And so they, they factor in their commission into their profit. But you have, to find, you have to have the patience to find the right deal. And in some ways, it, it, it really sucks just sitting there on those sidelines and go, oh, it's been six months or a year or something like that since we bought a property. But if the numbers don't work, the numbers don't work. And you have to have that patience to say, okay, we're only buying houses if they fit these criteria. And if they don't fit that criteria, don't buy it. Don't buy a deal just for the sake of making a deal. And so you got to have that patience and be, to be able to stick with your model, whatever the numbers that, that you want to work with, 
you got to have the right numbers and you got to find the properties that, that fit that mold. And if they don't fit, maybe if it's like just, just a hair outside of your, of your parameters, maybe you make an exception because it's been a long time and you need to put that money to work. Maybe you have investors that you're paying, paying interest to, or they're, they're participating in like the, the equity or they're participating in like the cash flow, and they're getting a little antsy. Maybe you maybe do something that's just outside of your border, but don't get some, grab something out of left field that is like nowhere near your, your numbers. It's going to throw off everything. And again, next thing you know, like you've left you know, $20,000, $40,000 into a property, or you bought something that's not going to appraise for what you need it to, or it's a property that just the cash flow isn't going to be there. You're not going to be able to service the debt without kind of going negative on that, on that one property every month. Yeah, you need that discipline to yes. <laughs> keep with the numbers. <laughs> well, and, especially, and especially right now with so many markets that are, that are getting maybe a little overheated, there's not nearly as many deals. It's not like, it's not like back in 2012 where you could basically throw a, a, a dart at a dartboard and, and make money. Yeah. But, uh, so it's so that and, and interest rates are rising, you know, so a deals that were awesome a, a couple of years ago. Now you're like, it's kind of borderline as far as whether or not it's going to cash flow. Uh, we refied a property almost a year ago and we refied the, the, the prior one a year prior to that. And the rate had gone up, you know, I think it was three quarters or even a full point. And so that property is not as cash flow positive as the previous one. And so you have to, like, even though interest rates are rising, I don't think a lot of the, like the, the newbie investors are recognizing the effects of that. And so they're still buying properties with those low interest rates in mind. And right. so when they go to refinance a property or when they go to try to sell that flip, they're going to have an oh no moment <laughs> and uh, it's going to be rough for them. Well, um, if you could hit a magic reset button and go back in time to the beginning of your investing career, is there anything that you would do differently? Any systems that you would put in place earlier? Things like that? I just, I would have asked a lot more questions to my mortgage brokers sooner. And then I would have realized that some of these programs were available, you know, that only later on when I figured it out. And so, cause again, I figured that out in 2013 or 2014, whatever it was when I bought that, that third property. And if I would have, especially during the downturn, when there were so many houses available, yeah, who cares about selling them? I would have been able to buy a lot more cheaper. And even if I hadn't got the, the appraised values as high as they would be today, just buying them so cheap and the, the rents would have been uh, increasing over time would have been able to buy a lot more properties. And I still had like, for a while, I still had that old school mentality. Like, okay, I need to pay, do traditional financing or I need to pay cash for it. I need to have X number of dollars or even need to have my own money. There was a lot of opportunity if you find the right investors, whether it's your family, your friends, or just other people that you meet, that, you know, there's a lot of properties I could have bought through the investor money too, you know, because yeah. You know, again, no matter how much you make, no matter how much you have, eventually you're going to run out of cash and then you're not going to be able to do that next deal. And so having some investors that maybe you can talk to that are willing to either subsidize it for an interest rate or subsidize it from a participation with use their money to buy the property and then you're taking a portion for your efforts, then that's a, that's a great way to approach it as well. Some sort of a... a uh rehash, but maybe we'll yeah. get even some more nuggets out of you. So, sure. um, 
If you were, you know, maybe presenting in front of a room full of, of newer real estate investors, what are the top two or three strategies that you would recommend that people move forward with to, to be successful? The strategies as far as buying rental properties or just real estate in general? Or, or well, what are, what are two or three things that they could maybe implement in the next three months? You know, okay. You know, uh, long-term strategy, you know, two or three things are, you know, we're, we're, our primary audience are people with families and full-time jobs, you know, they're okay. not going to be investing full-time. Sure. Uh, yet. And maybe they, you know, maybe they've got um, a lack of time. They've got maybe fears and doubts about making a mistake and things like that. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. So uh, one of the number one things that we haven't touched on yet is your credit has to be good. You know, none of these programs are going to work well on the delayed financing or other bank programs if you don't have your credit, you know, in place. And over the next few months, there's ways to improve your credit, whether it's paying down debt, increasing your credit lines to lower your utilization, putting things in place so that way you don't ever have uh, late payments. There's a lot of things like that that you need to do to make sure that your credit is good because if you, even if you have a lot of money, if your credit isn't good, you're not going to get a loan. Most banks, they need your credit to be good, especially now we're kind of getting to the end of like the you know economic cycle. We've had a lot of growth there. There's a lot of warning signs kind of floating around. And if you have some dings, like dings on your credit, especially recent dings, you're going to be priced out of any type of loan that you're trying to do. So that's number one is making sure that your credit is, is good. It, like, that's a, essentially probably one of the, the greatest assets people have that they don't really think of as an asset is your credit, whether it's applying for a loan to be able to do delayed financing. It's buying your primary home and being able to save you know, half a point or a full point on you know, having a 740 or 760 FICO versus a 660. You know, there's a lot of savings there. Or even like what I do a lot of, you know, with the travel hacking, getting the best credit cards so that way you can you know, save money on your travel so that way you can reinvest that money that you would have spent on travel into your, into your business, whether it's buying more properties or, or paying down your debt. So all these type of things, if you don't have your, your credit game solid, a lot of these things are kind of a non-starter for you. So that's number one. Yeah. But two, obviously you want to educate yourself, whether it's listening to the podcast. I used to listen to the radio all the time. And it, you know, sometimes I, I, I turn off the podcast and just kind of jam out a little bit on the radio. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, whether I'm driving the kids to school, it used to be when I was commuting to work, or even now when I go for a run around the neighborhood, I'm always listening to the podcast to try to gain some sort of knowledge. Um, you know, even if it's on a topic that I've already kind of understand, or it's something that I, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty high up on the, on the knowledge level, still there's sometimes there's nuggets that somebody else does. You go, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's good to reinforce those lessons or it's something you maybe just forgot because it's been a while since you've done that before. So always keep learning, but also don't let your learning get in the way of actual action. There's so many people that they are savants as far as the education but they're timid little mouse mice, you know, as far as actually making that first step and, and doing that first investment or putting in an offer on a deal. Like you have to find the right balance where you're educating yourself, but actually taking that knowledge and actually doing something with it. All right. Well, let's touch on the the travel hacking just a little bit because you have uh, you, Lee has a fantastic podcast called We Travel There. I've listened to a number of episodes and it is like a little bit, it's like a little travel guide from a local into um, various spots. I've listened to one for Austin and 
There's one for Arkansas. There's a place in Arkansas. Yeah, Benton, Bentonville, Arkansas. Bentonville, Arkansas. I was like, I had never heard of this place. I had yeah. no desire to ever go there. <laughs> Suddenly, I'm like, I want to go to Bentonville. Yeah. So uh, talk to us just a little bit about about your podcast and travel hacking. Don't get into the, the we'll, we'll invite you yeah. back some other time for sure. give you details, but tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I actually have uh, two sites. There's uh, wetravelthere.com, which is the, the podcast. And so what I do is I interview local experts from around the world to find out the best things to do in their city. And so uh, essentially my tagline is travel like a local. So instead of going to whatever city you want to go and, and going on Google and trying to find the best things to do or the best places to eat, I figured let's actually talk to a local and say, okay, if somebody's coming here, what are the things that we really shouldn't miss out on? Or even if we want to do the touristy things, how can we save money on that or avoid the lines? Uh, and then what are the best places to eat? Cause you know, I'm not much of a foodie, but I think I'm kind of turning into one a little bit uh, after hearing all these really cool ideas of food from all these people I've talked to. So it's, it's really kind of been a fun adventure even for me, even though I travel a lot, I'm learning about, like you said, cities like Bentonville, Arkansas, that I've never thought about traveling to, or cities that I've traveled to several times, like Austin, I'm learning about some cool restaurants or some cool things to do there that I hadn't known about before. Plus, make, you know, meeting a lot of great people along the way. Uh, we have, again, big cities like Philly, small cities like Bentonville. There's another one, I can't remember off the top of my head. It's, it's just inside of Georgia. And it's all these cities that are just random, and uh, there's international destinations, there's domestic locations. So it's really cool. And even if you don't want to travel, it's almost like you're, like you're living vicariously through these other people. And uh, maybe it'll inspire you to, to, uh, to travel someplace new. And that's, that's really kind of the whole goal of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, and then my other site is Bald Thoughts. And so that's uh, the bald head. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so what I do is on that site, it's more like a travel hacking, talking about credit cards and miles and points and, and how to use them to travel very inexpensively. Because again, if you're a family, you have a corporate job, all this, all these types of things, it's, it could be expensive. You know, I have two kids, I have a wife and if I have to buy four plane tickets, every time I want to travel someplace, you're plus paying for a hotel and everything else. You're talking multiple thousands of dollars every time you go on vacation. So by using the airline miles and hotel points, now you shaved off a, a significant portion of the cost. So you can either travel more or you can have better travel experiences or, you know what, we're in a city. I normally wouldn't kind of splurge on this one meal. You know, we save so much, you know, Hey baby, let's get, let's get the filet tonight, you know, or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That was kind of like with Hawaii. We, when we went to Maui, we like, uh, mama's fish house is like the the big, uh, the big expense. Yeah. 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 Well, Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been Definitely. really great talking to you. Those of you, you have you have a you have like a book uh, that you've written about travel hacking as well, haven't you? Or, well, I'm working on a, a course. It's uh, going to be released here soon. It's a seven days to your dream vacation, That's and great. so essentially, it kind of walks people that are unfamiliar with how miles and points work. Kind of walks them through the process of. You know, kind of how to pick a destination and then how to pick the right airline and, and hotel and then how to get all the miles and points for those hotel and airlines. So that way you can travel for significantly less than, uh, than you normally would do. Awesome. Great. Well, hopefully by the time this, uh, this interview comes out on the podcast, we'll, you'll be done and we can put a link in the, That'd be great. the show notes. Yeah. And if people want to reach out to you, Lee, what would be the best way for them to find you? I'm most active, uh, at my bald thoughts, uh, 
uh, on social media, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, it's all the same handle everywhere. You can do that. Or, you know, we travel there again, the same handles on all the different social media channels. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm active all the time. Got my phone with me kind of 24 seven and, <laughs> you know, reach out to me there and uh, I'll, I'll hit you back. All right. Awesome. Well, great. It was great talking to you, Lee. Thank Definitely. you. Thank you so much. It was great to see you. Okay, well, that was Lee Huffman. We thank him for his time. Lee's a single-family home buy-and-hold investor and world-renowned travel hacker. Again, you can check him out at Bald Thoughts uh, or on his podcast, We Travel There. Uh, both great places to go. I, I encourage you to check them out. So what? Um, let's start with the, the four values. What? Uh, how much knowledge did you think Lee took to get started? This is a question better for me. I don't know, maybe. Well, I just, it's hard because all of our guests really bring different sort of previous knowledge to mm -hmm. the table. And I think um, being a banker <laughs> probably mm -hmm. set him up to understand some things better than your average Joe just uh, getting into it. And he, and I don't know, it seemed like he sort of just had learned about some things passively over time when he first got started. So he probably actually didn't have, I mean, besides the sort of built-in knowledge that his financial career afforded him, it didn't sound like he had a lot of knowledge. He just sort of jumped in. Yeah. Um, I think he also, yeah, I think it's a good point. He sort of jumped in. He had kind of, um, he sort of learned by doing a lot. And I think uh, I would say, I mean, if I had to nail down how much time he spent getting himself educated, I would say three to six months. I mean, it just sort of seems like a fair, yeah, a fair yeah. assessment. I think that's probably enough time for the, for most people to be able to do the basics of yeah. uh, buy and hold. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, money wise, I would say, you know, he talked about when he first started out, he, he had a pretty good chunk of change from the sale of his home in California that he rolled into um, two is there, it was two two, two yeah. homes yes. two rental homes in North Carolina and it sounds like he bought them for about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars so we're talking maybe yeah. two hundred and forty and it sounds like he paid cash for them is that what you understood mm, he said he has a mortgage on them fifteen yeah. year mortgage so yeah okay I think so he put he, some money down he did he put a lot but he said he put a lot of money down so yeah. I'd say I mean I'd say, I'd say good a good $100,000 is probably what he started off yeah, with. Yeah. Um, now it seems like less with the de delayed financing. Did I understand that right? Well, I'm still not sure that I get it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, um, it's okay. You're not the, certainly not the only one. I think now he's able to use a little more creative financing. Uh, a lot of times what that delayed financing allows you to do is take that chunk of money and use it over and over again. You basically okay. are able to you know, use it to finance the purchase of a house and rehab it, and then you're able to put a loan on it. Oh, so you uh, kind of take it back out and then put a loan on out. it and take it back out exactly. and put a loan on it. Got it. And so uh, as Alex in episode one talked about, he, you know, Alex has recycled that 70, same $70,000 now almost six or seven times. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I, I think $100,000 is probably a good, a good number to say what he started off with. Yeah. Um, so how much time does it take on the day to day to maintain his, what he's doing? I would say, I mean, he, he had two, there's two sort of phases to his business. There's the acquisition phase, which is when they're buying, uh, when they're buying and rehabbing a place and it takes a lot more time. It's yeah. obviously, 
uh, a lot more communication with the bank. You've got to be really, really on the ball with getting the banks the documents because you've got a, only got a window of about six months to do the delayed finance. Yeah. Um, so you got and, a good team too, as far as the rehab. Yeah. And I, I would say he, uh, I got the impression we were talking about maybe 13 to 20 hours a week probably uh, during that. And then once it's up and running, it's more like, you know, if things are running a couple hours a week, week. (laughs) nothing too Um, much. So that's nice. And then we've got location. Did Um, we nail him down on how long he would, not uh, well, he kind of said as long as he had Wi-Fi and he wasn't working on a project that kind of indefinitely. Yeah. Like as long as, yeah. So, um, I'll say, I'll say, I'll, I'll give, give him the benefit of the doubt and say that's, you know, he's. Well, I think of, that's probably true. If you've got a good property manager on, on the ground, you, you're not buying anymore. You're just going with what you have. As long as those people are doing what they need to do, why would you need to come back? And if they have a question, again, if you've got Wi-Fi and, yeah. and cell phone service, good. Okay. So, I'd, say, I'd say infinity. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, overall... I don't know that. Do we really do an overall sort of evaluation? Not all the time. No. Not really. But I would just say that this is probably one of the easier. In some respects. In some respects. Um, time wise. You know, it's it's um, the way that Lee got started is the way a lot of a lot of investors get started with one one single family home and they build it to a portfolio of you know he's talking about he wants to uh, get up to ten. Uh, he actually well, talks thirty about total 30. with. With the wife um, and the partner, you know, it's a little bit of a, it's a, a somewhat slower method, but it's one of those methods where you can really kind of learn as you go. And mm-hmm. and uh, no, I think yeah. it's it's for somebody the hard. I think the hardest part um, is one finding a market to do it in. If you don't live in a market where it's going to make sense, like in the market that we work in uh, or the market we live in. And then also it's just about building a team and finding a good team and keeping them uh, on the ball. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks again for Lee for uh, sitting down with us. Great talking to him. He's a really great guy. And if you like this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.